innovative, often duplicated When enough people get on the trend, I elevate it Make it way harder for them to follow what I take It hard to swallow like a lozenger lodged in your trachea Goodness gracious, bruh, I can never make this up So just take your stuff, rake it up and take the bus Never fake the funk, you painted skunks You played enough, I'm lifting bars to outer space So the weight is up Fight! We always want to talk to the best people we can find in the martial arts. So when we have the opportunity to talk to a legendary MMA fighter and jiu-jitsu competitor who got to train with some of the best ever, we knew we had to jump at the chance. Welcome to another episode of Dirty White Belt Radio, everyone. Lourdes got the chance to talk to Miguel Torres. And if you don't know about Miguel Torres' career, you need to get familiar. He talked to us about training with Ricardo de la Riva and Carlson Gracie Sr., about his experience with traditional martial arts growing up, about his parents' support, and a harrowing story about the first fight of his that his mom watched. He also gives us his thoughts on the IBJJF and when we'll see him compete again. We might be breaking a little bit of news in this episode. We also talk about his early days of training, about why he bonded with Carlson Gracie Sr., about helping out lower-income folks who want to train. And some of my favorite parts of the interview are when he talks to us about growing up as a nerd with a fanny pack, about his favorite way to make tacos, and a little bit about airbrushed ghee patches. Without further ado, here's Lourdes interviewing Miguel Torres. Our featured interview today is brought to you by Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu Company. Toro BJJ produces the highest quality gis, rash guards, and grappling supplies for every Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. You can check them out online at torobjj.com. Our thanks to Toro Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for making our featured interview possible. So let's get to it. This is Lourdes with Dirty White Belt Radio, and I'm sitting here speaking with Mr. Miguel Torres. Hi, Miguel. How's everything going, Mr. Swanky Monkey? And who is this sitting next to you, Mr. Torres? This is my lovely daughter, Alana. Hi, Alana. Hi. So I was, I was wondering, um, Miguel, why you started training jiu-jitsu? What was it that inspired you to, to start training? Uh, when I was little, when I was like six, five, six years old, uh, that was the times of like, I grew up in the 80s, so that was Samurai Sunday. So after church all day, I go to my grandma's and literally watch Kung Fu flicks for like six hours. And uh, Bruce Lee and Chuck Norris and all these different like martial artists, uh, Cynthia Rothrock, like all these old school people I would see, it was always the smallest guy fighting like an army of people and saving the day or whatever it was, rectifying the situation. And as a young person, I was always bullied and picked on. I was really skinny and I was always the youngest guy of the friends that played outside, so I always got to try on the stick. I wanted to learn karate, but from like Mr. Miyagi, like a karate kid mm-hmm. kind of thing, but there was no Miyagi's out there. So uh, I did a karate class when I was seven, didn't work out too well, did a type of no class when I was like 12, 13. Never worked out because the money was too expensive to train and we were, we were broke. So when I started being able to make my own money when I was 15, 16, I started paying for my own lessons. And uh, right away, because it costed me my own money, I realized mm-hmm. what was bullshit and what was not bullshit. And not saying that traditional martial arts are bullshit, but the way I was being taught them, it was just basically like, it wasn't Taekwondo, it was take my dough. You know, it was like, it was just a hustle. And I wasn't trying to get a belt. I was trying, and I was being picked on every day. So I had to learn how to defend myself from bullies and, you know, just to stand up for myself. When I would tell my instructors, hey, master or sensei or uh, this guy didn't, my threw that sidekick. And he just grabbed my leg and took me to the floor and then, like, literally just 
pummeled me. It's like, how do I stop that? And they would never give me the right answer. They'd always say, well, when you're a black belt, you'll throw one kick and you'll knock them out or you'll do, you know, you know this move or whatever it is. And I was like a yellow belt still. So it's never going to, you know, didn't see it. And I knew he never fought. I knew he couldn't probably beat up the bully that was beating me up. So if you couldn't beat up my bully and you never got into a fight yourself and you're overweight, you can't, you know, I didn't see the coalition him defending, te- teaching me how to defend myself. So from there, I quit going to gyms and started meeting guys that were just doing like, they were training for, uh, in the old days in this area, there was a couple of different bars. They had like mixed martial arts contests. So it was like tough man fights, but in a boxing ring. So it was MMA in a boxing ring. And uh, you had to be 18 or over to compete. And I would always think to myself in high school, I was like, this is what I got to do to learn how to defend myself, to organize fights, like getting in there and make a name for myself so people won't, you know, they'll respect me. And uh, my first seven fights I fought for no pay because I didn't know I, I, didn't know I can get paid, first of all. Mm-hmm. And second of all, I didn't want to involve money because I didn't want, because money was the root of all evil and I was real idealistic at the time. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to involve money because then I don't want to involve money, things change. Mm-hmm. And then my dad found out I was fighting. I didn't tell him that I was fighting. So he found out he, I was fighting for one of his friends. So I'm training in a garage gym, uh, get a fight, start winning some fights. And then one of his buddies from work seen me fight. And he's talking to my dad at work saying, hey, that was an amazing, just, son did a great job. So after he told me that, uh, I should start getting paid. I started making like 100 bucks, 200 bucks. And I ended up paying my college tuition through fighting in, uh, in those, in those mixed, mixed martial arts contests. But the whole reason I started training was in the beginning to defend myself and to make a name for myself. And once I started doing that and money started coming in, I was able to invest back into, into buying mats and buying gloves and just buying stuff to open a business one day, open a gym, mm-hmm. and to pay my tuition off. And when school was done, I met Carlson and just, just going to Brazil. I got a met the Lahiva. I was just do, living my dream because there was nothing else. Like, I wasn't doing nothing else in my time. Mm-hmm. But all this stemmed from wanting to learn how to defend myself and also making my dad happy because he used to watch boxing a lot when I was little. And when he would watch boxing, I would watch, I wouldn't watch the fights, I would watch him you know, my uncles. A bunch of grown men that never cried ever. And Chavez is walking out and they're getting up and they're yelling and they're literally emotional. He'd mm-hmm. win and they'd cry. He didn't lose, he won. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, wow. Like, I wanted to invoke that, that emotion in my father. And I wanted to make him proud like that. Mm-hmm. And so that was how that started. So talk to me a little bit more since we're talking about your dad. Tell me, talk to me more about how your family supported you and like what happened when they found out that you were fighting and how did your community support you as well? Uh, people knew who I was. In the beginning, my family didn't. My mom never, she still hates fighting. She still hates what I do. She's always hated Did your it. mom ever go see you fight? Oh, she's come to see me fight. And in the old days when I was fighting, there was no weight classes. So the weight class was 130 to 160. Mm-hmm. So I was 125 pounds, weighing in with quarters of my jeans to be heavier. And then there was guys that were cutting weight to 160 from 185 to 175 to get into the weight class so we can be in the lightweight class. I had like eight fights. I was eight and no, nine and no, in a, in a couple of different bars. And then they went to a, like a big rec center to throw another show. And uh, I was fighting some guy that was like 6'2", six, 6'3". His name was Jesse Gudenschlager. I'll never forget the fucking name. Guy was giant. He was a bricklayer. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was so tall that he was able to hold me from his clothes guard, or from my clothes guard. He was able to hold me down by his hands and punch me without having to like sit up. So he was just, that's how long his arms were. He could just molly walk me like that. And he was standing up to throw big punches from the ground. So every time he would do that, I would move my head and he would hit the ring and 
boom, it would shake everything. So it was a boxing ring, so it was hollow underneath. Mm-hmm. My mom, they were sitting in the front row mm-hmm. with my friends. She's screaming when he's walking out before the fight team is starting. I'm wearing, I had just watched Choke with Hickson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he had those white Latula shorts that were so amazing. <laughs> I was broken, couldn't afford shorts like that. Couldn't find any. Didn't even have the internet at that time. Mm-hmm. So I went to Walmart, next best thing. You know those football tights, the long ones? Yeah. Come down to your knee? Well, I bought a pair of those and cut them like this. Mm-hmm. But they were see-through. So I'm like, I'll get two pairs. So I got two pairs and cut them. Put them like that and wore them at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I had a jock strap with a cup mm-hmm. and two of those neoprene football underwears cut in half. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that when I walked in, when I stepped over the ropes, they were like... It literally rose like underwear. So it looked like a 125-pound Mexican kid with no mullet, pre-mullet, okay, walking in in his underwear versus a 6'2", 185-pound, just brick-laying monster, all right? So his hands are giant. This guy just walks in like Frankenstein. My mom is screaming, stop the fight. No. She's getting up trying to get my friends. had to take her outside. And she ran back inside, had to move her all. She was screaming the whole time. You could hear her in the tape. Stop the fight. And my mom in the background the whole time. That fight, I ended up breaking his jaw, but it was an ugly fight because he, I realized every time he got up, he was trying to break my face open. He missed a punch when he threw it, and he thumbed me in my eye. When that happened, I was literally blind out of one eye. Mm-hmm. He cut my cornea up, and uh, he got up again to do it. And when he did it, I did an up kick, broke his jaw. And then the fight was over. But my mom hated it so much. From that moment on, she heard about the fights mm-hmm. and then went. That was her first fight she went to. I won every fight before that. I was winning like with a choke, with the like clean. This fight was ugly and I got hurt in this fight. So she hated it from then. My dad, <clears throat> he'll say he loves it. I know he loves it. I know it makes him happy. I did all this like for my father because both my parents worked their whole lives to make my, my life better. My parents basically sacrificed their lives for me and my brother and my sister. My dad's worked 12-hour shifts as long as I know him and doubles and does all this stuff. And with the money, he goes back to the family. And every day he would tell me his only goal in life was to get something better for me, for me to go to college, for me. I didn't want to go to school, honestly. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to. I wanted to do real estate. I wanted to do business. I, wanted, I had like an entrepreneurial mindset. But my mom and dad wanted me to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it was, a politician. And So I went to school for them so they could have the degree on the wall and be happy about it, to talk shit to their friends. Mm-hmm. And uh, but honestly, this is all this is all I want to do. So my dad, I know he's happy with this stuff. He's he just doesn't like the fighting too much anymore. He thinks I should stop. But uh, that's me to decide when that happens. So do you ever compete anymore? Like, do you do any of the IBJJFs or any of the like the super fights? I haven't did an IBJJF because I don't like the IBJJF. I never did. Okay. I was with Carlson when they were accepting the first IBJJF. They were talking in Brazil, talking about what they were going to do. They're not the, the, go, the end-all governing body for jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. People give them the power because all the black belts in the area that are Brazilian, they all support it and make the students support it. Mm-hmm. I don't believe in the rules of the IBJJF. Okay. That's for me, like I'm more like an Eddie Bravo kind of scenario or a, 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 a grapple to where you're grappling to a finish. Mm-hmm. When you have certain rules that favor certain styles or certain positions versus others, mm-hmm. like it's not... It's not grappling anymore, it's jiu-jitsu. Don't get me wrong, I love jiu-jitsu. I think the IBJJF runs a great tournament, but I've seen a lot of dirty shit happen mm-hmm. where one guy's friends with the referee and then the guy gets cheated or a bad call. I've seen it happen numerous times. You know, everyone has, mm-hmm. but no one says anything. If you're a certain type of person, 
you could walk in with a short gi, with the wrong belt, with the wrong patch or whatever, and they'll let you slide. I've seen it. But if you're the wrong person, then you got to go buy a new gi, you got to buy a new belt, you're told, they'll, you know, and they'll give you this $300 bill now to compete, and you already spent 400 bucks to go compete already. Mm-hmm. So for me, like, I see that a lot from the beginning. Before all this got really popular, I seen all this stuff happening. So I still compete. I haven't competed in a while because I just had my son about eight months ago. I opened a second gym, so I've been kind of busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even retired from uh, mixed martial arts because it was just... I didn't want to keep turning. I was keep getting offered fights, and I kept having to turn fights down. I didn't want to. I, I don't like turning fights down like that. I always like having something to train for. But I had to take some time in my life and handle some situations that were going on as far as my business and my personal life. So, mm-hmm. training again. Uh, I want to get back into everything probably sometime next year. Looking to get back into certain things. That's exciting. Do you think it'll be it'll be like more of like super fight type stuff, like smaller, like the Kasai or? I like, like I like going into tournaments. I like the tournament. Uh, I like the tournament aspect of grappling, but there's no really money in that. Super mm-hmm. fights is where the money's at. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if I don't do a little bit of both. Okay. And you get to throw some more guys in the tournament. Mm-hmm. You know, for super fight, you're going in for just one match. It's like a regular fight. Yeah. Just depends sure on what's paying more money, I guess. Like for me, <clears throat> winning a tournament or a fight is not going to satisfy my ego at all. Mm-hmm. Until I've gone surpassed what I've done in the past, my ego won't get fed for nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, all this I do now is just because I love the sport so much. I compete because I love to show my daughter, to show my students, to show my, my supporters that what we have in this area is real. Mm-hmm. And it's on a world level that we can take this anywhere. So mm-hmm. a lot of times when I do compete or I do do anything like that is to just show my students that don't give up, believe in yourself. This is how we train for something. This is how you do it like a professional. Mm-hmm. U.S. Grappling is our favorite tournament organization for a lot of reasons. Run by grapplers for grapplers, U.S. Grappling consistently provides the best tournament experience for competitors. Whether it's a points tournament or submission only, and U.S. Grappling runs true no time limit submission only events, it's the best place to compete and to watch your friends compete. Check out upcoming events and register online at usgrappling.com. So talk to me, so you're talking now about your students and how you're trying to be uh, an advocate or try to um, show them the way, kind of like give them an idea of like this is something, this Put is the way. Put up or shut up. Right, this is, this is how, this is our school and I'm your teacher and this is how and if you're I showing represent, them. If I represent our school the way I do, mm-hmm. I don't expect anything less from you. Right. That's what I'm trying to show them. So then talk to me a little bit about your teacher, Carlson Gracie Sr., and your relationship with him. Carlson to me was like Mr. Miyagi. When I met Carlson, I already had a pro belt from De La Hiva. So I started training jiu-jitsu in a garage, then went to a community center, and the highest level guy was a blue belt. Uh, and then from training with different blue belts, I met Marcelo Montero. He was in Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And then I got a blue belt from him, but when I met him, I already had 30 fights. I was like 30, you know, when I met, uh, no, I was like 20, you know, when I met Marcelo Montero. And in that process, I never trained with the gi. Mm. I only did no gi. Mm-hmm. I would walk out in a gi, but I wouldn't wear a belt. It was like a like base like a, like a rope. And I was so ghetto, it was airbrushed. I airbrushed <laughs> my... I, I didn't have patches, so I, had, I took it to the mall, and I had it airbrushed. It was so funny. So <laughs> I go out, and uh, I want to be like... I want to say like 24. I was already with De La Hiva for like about two or three years, and I will go to Brazil for two months. Two months out of the, out of the, out of the year, I would go to Brazil. And... Uh, I would train with De La Hiva, I would train with Carlson's. Well, once I met Carlson, I would train at Carlson's gym, but it was a great experience because, like, you're literally living 
your dream in a country where all those guys do is train. And uh, Dela Hiva was the one that told me, he goes, well, you're coming out here from, you know, Chicago to, to Brazil and you're spending all your money. He's like, I don't even train fighters. Like, if you want to train jiu-jitsu for MMA, the guy that gave me my black belt trained some of the best guys in the world. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea who Carlos and Gracie really was. I didn't even know he was in Chicago. Like, I never left my 10-mile radius of this space unless I was going to Indianapolis. I never went to the city because it was expensive and just didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. And when he told me Carlson was there, I came back, went to Carlson's gym. Carlson was already going to my fights at the Civic Center in Hammond where Stephen Bonner was fighting. He had a couple guys that were fighting already. And uh, he called me the Mexican rooster because I would always come out with mariachis and I was always a scrappy little guy and I was winning my fights and he appreciated that. So by the time I got to Carlson, I already had like 30 fights. And I was pro with De La Hiva. So Carlson, to me, I already in my mind knew I wanted to be a world champion and knew I wanted to travel the world and knew I wanted to be the best and do all these different things. And I was already doing them. And uh, meeting Carlson was like the solidification of that. That was like, for sure, I manifested this greatness to happen because it was already happening. And I met an even greater man than myself to help me to get to where I want to be because he's been there and he's helped guys to get there already. He's already trained the best. He's already... American top team, Brazilian top team, Nevunyao, all these great teams that are out now, those instructors came from Carlson. Mm-hmm. So when I seen that, I was like, this guy believes in me. And as soon as I talked to him, he's like, oh, telling me all these different things. And he told me he wanted me to be on contract and he wanted me to be signed up with him and do all these different things. And when I told Carlson that I had my own academy and that I was already with, you know, I told him what I had going on. Mm-hmm. He looked at me like, he came, checked it out. I never realized why he liked me so much. He seen that I was training a bunch of kids that didn't have money. There was half the guys in my gym couldn't afford it, so I was giving them this. So I was taking care of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I used to take care of people that didn't have money. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of seen the correlation of how our styles were, so we just meshed immediately. And he just was one of those guys, whenever Carlson was in the room with me, I could not lose. I could never lose when he was in the room. And if I did lose, I worked on it to never lose that way again. So for me, Carlson was one of those guys that was like, he was just like my, my father. He looked out for me extremely well. He told me everything that was going to happen, and it happened. Even after he passed, he always told me I was going to be a world champion. He always told me all these different things of what I was going to do. And I already knew it because I believed it since I was a kid that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's just basically just manifest destiny was, was occurring, and I was just letting it, I was just willing it to happen. Mm-hmm. When he passed, uh, I was still a brown belt. He didn't give me a black belt yet. I had four stripes, and I stayed that way for like three or four years. I didn't want to take a, a, a belt from anybody else. And then Junior ended up giving me the belt for his dad. So uh, one of those things where, like, Carlson changed my life. Because when I went to Brazil with Carlson, I was going to Brazil every year myself alone. Now I'm with Carlson. This guy's walking in places. Just He owns that. He owned that city. He, mm-hmm. owned, that, he owned that town. So do you have a funny story or what's, a, what's one of your, um, either a funny story or just a favorite story about Carlson Gracie Sr.? Oh, man, there's so many different stories with Carlson. One of my favorite things about Carlson, like, he always, I always had a fanny pack. I was, always, I was a, a nerd growing up, and I was, like, a dork, so I always had a fanny pack. Okay. I, never, I never had a wallet. I, even to this day, I will not use a wallet. Mm-hmm. I carry my credit card, my ID, and some cash, and that's all I carry. <clears throat> so I had a fanny pack. So I was made fun of, and then when I hang out with Carlson, Carlson also has a fanny pack. But Carlson's fanny pack was different than mine. Carlson's fanny pack was like Batman's fanny pack. Like Batman's bat belt. Uh-huh. Anywhere we would go, I always wore a Torres shirt to represent my academy. Mm-hmm. Even when I was with Carlson, 
And I felt even tougher because I was walking with Carlson, and he had his Carlson Gracie shirt on, and I had my Torres shirt on. Uh-huh. And I was like, yeah. And then before we'd walk into a building and meet some other people that he knows, he's like, double XL, Carlson Gracie shirt, put it on. I wear a small. I'm a petite male. He's throwing me a double XL Carlson Gracie shirt, like of a jersey unit. It's like it fit me like a like a dress. Uh-huh. So as tough as I thought that I was walking into this building, now I gotta wear a double X shirt and try to tuck it in my tight pants and have it like it just looked crazy. <laughs> and then when I would walk in, the sleeves are down to my forearm. <laughs> I look like a little kid now, even though I'm already small. I now look smaller because mm-hmm. I'm wearing one of his dirty shirts that he had in his fanny pack, stuffed, and it's all wrinkled because it was like stuffed in there. Right. <clears throat> And I'm walking, and he's like, this is my Mexican rooster. This is, and he's, this is Miguel Torres. And people are like, this guy right here? And I'm like, hi, hi. <laughs> and he would always, anywhere we would go, he'd always pull out. He had, like, chocolate. He had car keys. He had, like, bullets. He had, like, a lighter. He had, like, he had whatever you would talk, like, CDs. Mm-hmm. And he would meet somebody. You like music? And he rifled through his things and pull out, like, a CD. That he made himself handwritten with the, you know. Oh, really? I have... All the CDs that he ever made, because he loved music so much, he would make, he would call them Carlson Gracie International. One, two, three, four, five. And there was just different music from, because he traveled around the world. Mm-hmm. So he had Russian music and music from France and Mexican music and American music. But they were his favorite songs. And he would always pull out a CD. He's just, just like a bat belt. He was just a guy that just like, anywhere he went, he just had the energy of the room. He was like mm-hmm. the, the show. He can make anybody smile. He can make anybody laugh. He can make anybody like feel empowered. So for me, he taught me a lot of things about how to be a strong leader, and how to be a passionate person. Were you a- ever able to share with Carlson um, your tacos or your taco recipes? Or you your know love what? Tacos? Me and Carlson always ate at Chipotle. So Carlson had this thing where I couldn't eat what I wanted to eat when I was at Carlson. Okay. We ate what Carlson wanted to eat. So it was always Chipotle, and then it was always go to uh, Starbucks afterwards. So he's ne- he never tried your tacos? He never got to try my tacos, no. Never. He did get to try my soup. Because when I got my, uh, I think it was the Lahiva head came down for a seminar. And uh, I was already with Carlson. And so I knew that Lahiva was going to be in town. So the Lahiva was like, hey, man, I'm going to be in town after the seminar. We're going to go to Chicago and hang out with Carlson. I'm like, for sure. You guys are going to come to my house and we're going we're gonna to pick him up. You're going to come and you're going to eat at my house. So I made caldo de res, mm-hmm. my favorite stew, mm-hmm. and brought them over and we ate. You know, it was it was cool. He got to have that, but he didn't get to really. Eat. He wasn't really a big taco person. Carson always got a, a burrito bowl. Mm. He always had dietary problems. That's kind of what demised him in the end. He had a really bad uh, diet, and uh, he got sick, and he had blood, blood ended up getting septic, and then just deteriorated from there. Mm-hmm. So for him, I think his diet was a big thing for him. So he didn't eat, like, tortillas and stuff like that. He loved chocolate, though. Yeah. He did love chocolate. But I had to stop him. He'd get a giant, one of those giant bars, those, those candy bars, the mm-hmm. king-size one, and he'd put it in his fanny pack. <laughs> so this is, like, kind of a magic fanny pack? Yes, I'm telling you. He pulled out, like, a lamp. I'm like, an eight-foot lamp. <laughs> hey, you need a lamp? Here goes a lamp. You need some Christmas lights for your house? Here goes Christmas lights. You lost your car keys? Here goes the extra set for you. Boom. And they would work. They would work. He was like Batman. He was. Hey, Jeff Shaw. Hey, Betsy O'Donovan. I was browsing the geese online at ToroBJJ.com the other day. And what did you see? I saw a new Jeff Shaw gi, and it got me to thinking. 
I think a lot of people are curious how different gi designs happen, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. A lot of people start with color. I don't. I start with design elements that I want to include, and every gi I want to have a theme, something that has a little little Easter egg that only the people that are in the know know about. For this gi, I used to live in Okinawa, and I'm really fascinated with Okinawan culture, particularly because the culture is so linked to the martial arts. And so I came up with a few images that I thought were just generally cool looking, but that also fit the themes that jujitsu people think about a lot, like honor, loyalty, dignity. And then we came up with a really cool purple color to throw on top of it. I was a purple belt at the time. <laughs> well, you can check that gi out, as well as uh, a lot of other fantastic and comfortable gis at torabjj.com. Thanks for supporting our friends. So what, what is your favorite taco recipe? Or what is your favorite taco? And, and is it something that you make or something that your mom makes? I can't or? say I have a favorite taco. I think all tacos are amazing. Now, it depends on what kind of love you put into the taco that you're going to eat. So for me, how I make my, my tacos, I like making steak tacos. So I use the arachera meat. I actually get a bone-in ribeye. I get a couple of steaks, and I cube that up. Sea salt, a lot of lime, some good beer. A lot of garlic and then green onion. Chop it all up in there and then you fry it up. And it turns into this amalgamation of greatness. It's crazy because, like, she'll tell you, you'll eat tacos anywhere, but these tacos are different. They taste a lot different. Uh, I like barbacoa tacos as well. I like canitas on the weekends. Like, there's so many good different types of tacos. And you're having corn tortillas, or you're having flour tortillas. Are they store bought? Are they homemade? Who makes the salsa? Salsa is everything when you have tacos. So for me, when I make my tacos, my sauce is the most important thing of the taco. So if you don't have good sauce, the taco, no matter how good the meat is, it's going to suck. So for me, the sauce, is, I wouldn't even give you that because that's like the secret part of it. But the sauce is the best. It's everything. It's so everything. You, you won't share your salsa recipe? It's the secret part? It's cherry tomatoes. You got to use cherry tomatoes, not regular tomatoes because they're sweet. And oh. then I use any pepper, every pepper I can find. Serrano, jalapeno, uh, chipotle, any, any pepper you can find. And then you just, how you pair them up. I don't make it, it's, it's a hot salsa, but it takes you through. So there's so many, like, sweet, there's sweet peppers, and there's all, the different, there's all the different kinds of peppers. It'll take you from a hot to a low heat. Hmm. Do you, do you make it pico de gallo style, or do you make it, you put it in the blender? I, blow, I boil it, and I put it in the blender. Okay. I used to make it with the mocajete, with, this, with the mortar and pestle, the rock one. Mm-hmm. So my mom showed me when I was her age, because she had arthritis, supposedly. She just didn't want to do it. <laughs> so I was like... One jalapeno and then salt, and another jalapeno and then salt, and then a tomato, and that would take me an hour. Was that your version of uh, the Mr. Miyagi like yes. wax, oh, wax on, wax, wax on, off? Wax off. Yes, that was <laughs> since I was little. That was my that was my Mr. Miyagi moment, and I would be like, I hate this so much. And then you have all this pepper on your hands, and you forget about it. And even after you wash it, and you scratch your eye. You're like, ah. <laughs> so I found the blender works a lot easier. That ninja does mag- does magic. I think. Uh, one day I want to open a restaurant for sure. For sure, I will. I already see it. Maybe like I want to. I want to get back to. I want to. I will. Once I have the restaurant, then I'll send taco trucks out, like like the paleta guys, yes. the those, but taco guys. When yes. taco and taco trucks like that, the little ones, the push ones. I think that's kind of genius. Actually. Me, me, me. Well, they have them in Mexico, and you just have like a walk, and you just gas, and you cook right there on the spot. Do you know how many times like you go to a tournament and there's nothing really good to I've eat? been talking about this for so long. One day when I throw my own tournament here, this is where I'm going to throw it, I'm going to have tacos outside. Just... No one's even going to want to train or fight. They're going to want to just eat. We're going to want their tacos. 
And then if you have some soup at the same time, a little bowl of soup. Mm-hmm. And then like for me, I, I have a passion in like making it, people's experiences like the best experience they can have of whatever we're doing. So if it's training, whatever, to make that the best. If we're eating, whatever. Like for me, <clears throat> life is so short and at any moment it could be your last, right? So if you eat in a hurry all the time and you do everything in a hurry all the time, and you're going to die fast and you're not going to enjoy anything. So if every meal that I eat, I take a minute and I breathe and I prepare it myself or I enjoy what I'm eating because it's like a good food. Uh, if I had my last experience with the people that I was with and I had like a great class or a great role or whatever, you know, it was not just a half-assed thing or just, a, just for show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, like, I like experiences like that. So I try to do that with whatever I do. Salsas, tacos, mm-hmm. playing video games with her. Uh, whatever it is I think that's like how you leave your signature for, your, for who you are as a person like how you leave the situation how you enter it and how you leave it well I think that you've been um, an inspiration to a lot of not just fighters but a lot of jujiteros it was, it was through my friends that I heard your name and um, decided to come up and to train with you and also to get a chance to sit and talk to you. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit and speak with me and to, and to teach me today. And thank you, um, Batman Torres, for, um, <laughs> for sitting here and um, for talking to us, too. You want to say hi? Hi. Um, but thank you so much, Miguel, and um, I look forward to speaking with you again soon and possibly seeing you um, compete. Anytime, for sure, it will happen. For sure. Thank you for the interview. And uh, to anybody out there, that's a supporter. I appreciate you very much, and uh, you guys see me again in the future. So, see you guys on the mat. That's our show for the week. This was a bonus show. We always bring you one every week, but sometimes we're going to drop in some bonus shows here and there to reward you, the loyal listener. We appreciate everybody listening. And if you're interested in the show and participating, you can also go to uh, dirtywhitebelt.com to check out our Dirty White Belt Awards. Our show out this Sunday, December 17th, is going to reveal those awards. We've got some cool trophies that are going to be sent out to people at their gyms across the American Southeast, as well as certificates for everybody who was a nominee. Uh, this is Dirty White Belt Radio. I'm my name is Jeff Shaw. The co-hosts are Lourdes Cantu and Betsy O'Donovan. We appreciate all our Patreon supporters. You can join them for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash dirtywhitebelt. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next Sunday.